If possible, could we have the platform lights off? Thanks. Now, we run the risk of going, moving from the sublime to the ridiculous because we've just come through a strong worship set honoring Christ for his death for us. We've honored God for his sovereignty and his power. And we've just read from Scripture. That's the sublime. Now we're headed into the ridiculous because I'm going to, we, I found an excellent introduction for the topic of this passage in a contemporary sitcom. So bear with it. But now here's the thing. For those of you who don't know Big Bang Theory, (laughs) you know, it's a bunch of, not people like us, it's a bunch of science nerds, right, who are really socially awkward. And this little segment, we've pulled together two segments from the one episode, which Leonard comes up with an idea on how to overcome social awkwardness and its interference with his dating life. Now, this we had to pull it off of YouTube, so it may not be entirely sharp, but I think you'll get the point. I think I finally figured out my problem with women. The capybara is the largest member of the rodent family. What does that have to do with me and women? Nothing. It was a desperate attempt to introduce an alternate topic of conversation. (laughs) My problem is I don't project confidence. So I decided that the next time I meet a woman I think is attractive, rather than holding back and being cautious, I'm going to assume the mantle of self-assurance. Oh yeah? What does that look like? Hi, I'm Leonard, and you are beautiful. You pop, sparkle, and buzz electric. I'm going to pick you up at eight, show you a night you will never forget. Where are we going? You work with Mr. Wallowitz here at the university, correct? Yes. Of course, we're in different departments. He's an engineer, and I'm an experimental physicist. You know, one of those guys who examines the building blocks of creation and says, Hello, maker of the universe. I see what you did there. Good one. Right. Now, how would you characterize your relationship with Mr. Wallowitz? Good. It's a good relationship. Of course, most of my relationships are good. Probably because I exude confidence. People are drawn to that, you know. (laughs) Confidence, not exuding. Do you know of any groups Mr. Wallowitz is a member of? You are beautiful, you know that? You pop, sparkle, and buzz electric. I'm going to pick you up at eight. Show you a night you will never forget. Sounds great. Really? Yeah. Can my six-foot-two Navy SEAL husband come with us? Is that, oh, my, I didn't see the ring with my glasses off. So. Look at that, I'm starting to exude. <laughs> there is a connection. We laugh at this because... We know people like this, not because any of us are people like this, but we know people. But the point of it, 
Actually, research does demonstrate the point that they're making on this show. That charisma and dynamism matter in life. They matter in our relationships, and they matter at work. Uh, recently, Time Magazine has begun this, uh, this uh, series uh, summarizing pop psych or research in psychology. And they had a, an article entitled, How to Be Cool. And the basic premise that it begins with is this. Cool makes a difference in life. Research demonstrates that whether you're a leader or you want to be a leader, charisma matters. It gives you a competitive advantage. What they did was they studied effective leaders that were kind of charismatic or outgoing or, you know, attracting. And they studied equally effective leaders who weren't so charismatic. And what they found was that people preferred to work with the charismatic excellent leader over the other excellent effective leader. Uh, it gives you a competitive advantage in attracting and retaining the best talent. It makes people want to work with you, your team and your company. Uh, research shows that those following charismatic leaders actually perform better. They experience their work as more meaningful. They have more trust in their leaders over those leaders who are equally effective but not charismatic. So if you want people to enjoy working with you, if you want them to be more effective working with you, if you want them to find their work or their ministry more meaningful, you got to be charismatic. Which, for some of us, that's a heavy burden. The article goes on to say, however, it offers hope. It doesn't just offer, you know, some kind of depression here. It offers hope because you can learn to be cool. Here's five tips for learning how to be cool. <laughs> yeah. The overall, the overall thesis of it is this. Fake it till you make it. Number one, less. Do less. Less smiling, less hand gestures, less, you know... Don't be worried about how people take you. And certainly don't smile because that makes it kind of ingratiating. You know, uh, don't try to be cool. Because that signals, I'm so smooth, I don't have to try to get what I want. People naturally give it to me. James Bond does not plead. He does not smile. He does not fidget. So, uh, you know, charismatic people... Uh, Avoid any kind of uh, nonverbal clues that they're looking for acceptance or appreciation or, or respect. Secondly, though, they say you don't follow, you don't focus on these hand gestures and, and, and all this, you know, smiling and all. The, the first point is don't do all this stuff, but the second point is don't focus on not doing all that stuff because that'll just overload your brain. What you really got to do is, like they said, like an athlete before a game. You got to get in the zone. You got to get yourself psyched up before some major event. And once you're in the zone, then all the rest of this stuff will follow. So first, you got to do less, less engagement. And secondly, don't focus on that stuff. Actually, focus on being confident. Uh, thirdly, you want to, you want to, a trick for getting people to uh, like you is assume they already do. At least if you're male. Assume that you're the biggest, baddest guy in the room and that people are fortunate to be associating with you. 
Because if you are gentle and timid and meek, they don't want that in men. Now, I don't know whether this is an advantage or a disadvantage, women. They're okay if you're gentle and tender and meek. But they're not okay with guys being that way. You gotta, modesty is a negative. You've gotta act confident. You gotta exude confidence. Uh, fourthly, know what the social rules are and break them. You've got to have some discretion about how many of these rules you break and how, but you've got to break rules to show that you're above the rules. You know, the rules are made for you. You're not made for the rules. Everybody else has to live by the rules. You don't have to live by the rules. You're too powerful for that. And the fifth is my favorite because all academic research ends up this way. The fifth rule is this. The fir first four rules don't always apply. Okay. We don't know what to do in those circumstances. Now, here's the thing. And the reason all this is relevant to what we're looking at today is this doesn't just apply to dating. And it doesn't just apply to work. It actually also applies to ministry. And it applies to Scripture as we turn to the Bible. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you use the Pew Bible, it's page 818. If you use an electronic device, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Really what we've got, you've noticed, we've mentioned this before, the whole of 2 Corinthians, the entire book. You know, Paul talks about several things, but the subtext to all of it is, they don't like Paul. And the reason they don't like him is, they don't think he's charismatic, they don't think he's confident, they don't think he's competent. And the whole book, whatever he's trying to get them to do, every step, whenever he says do this or, or don't do that, he's always got to address this elephant in the room. They don't want to take direction from him because they're not impressed with him. And so the whole issue of exuding confidence or, or how do you exude confidence, how do you portray this, really runs throughout all of Second Corinthians. We see this beginning in chapter 5, verse 12. Notice how Paul begins in verse 12a. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again. We are not trying to boost ourselves up in your eyes. Now why does he say that? Because he is, in a way, trying to boost himself up in their eyes. Because they don't think highly of him. And he's about to tell them why they should think highly of him. And the key to this passage comes in, in the, second, the last half of that verse, 12. We are giving you the opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. And this is the distinction that he's going to develop through the first half of this passage. What do you take pride in? And he's making this distinction between what is seen, the outward, the visible, versus what's in the heart. And he develops that distinction through what follows. His first reason why they should take confidence in him, why they should commend him, it's because of what's in his heart. Look at verses 13 to 15. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. Some people think Paul's just very incompetent, or his teaching's not adequate, or he's just crazy. People are insulting him, basically. And he says, look, I have a heart for God. If what I'm doing in ministry, 
my public preaching, the harassment I face, if that makes me look incompetent, if that makes me look uh, ridiculous, he says, I do this for God. I have a heart for God. But more than that, he says, I have a heart for you, Corinthians. Verse 13, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, three or four times he says, what's the key here? First he says, it's important that Paul have a heart for the Corinthians themselves. But then he draws attention to his heart for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. More than that, we not only love you, we love Christ. The love of Christ compels us. He died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. And that's who I live for, Paul is saying. Paul's basically saying, I may not have all the outward glitz and glamour. I may, may not be a great speaker, which mattered in those days. Paul says, I may not be a great philosopher, which mattered in those days. Paul says, I, I may not be charismatic. But here's the thing. Paul says, I, I love you. And I love God. And that's really what matters. What matters is what's in the heart. Church today is really competitive like anything else, really. Uh, recently, a grocery store near our home was bought out, and then to recover customers because their prices were so high, they dropped their prices. Now, when they dropped their prices, what do you suppose we did? We changed grocery stores. <laughs> or, you know, I'm in the market for a laptop. And really pretty much all my career to this point, I've always had the one brand of laptop. I haven't always selected it. Sometimes it's been selected for me. But now the reviews on that brand or not, that model are not so good anymore. And so what do you suppose I'm doing? I'm leaning toward buying a different company's laptop. Well, kind of church is kind of like that way as well. It's become commodified. Now, I'm going to use an illustration. That, don't take it too seriously. Sometimes I'll be in a room and with a bunch of Christians, and when we're Christians are together, what do we talk about? We don't talk about, well, well you know, at least if it's co-ed, we don't talk about the girls we like best or the guys we like best. We've got to talk about something more deeper and meaningful. So what do we talk about? Well, sometimes it's the computer games we like best. But if we're really spiritual, what do we talk about? Yeah, well, if we're really spiritual. But <laughs> what we end up talking about often is the churches we like best or the preachers we like best. You know, and sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I want to you know, raise up a little flag and say, hey guys, I'm here, you know. I don't mind if you talk about this stuff behind my back, but, you know, wait until I leave the room. You know. Well, i got a solution here. What I'm going to do, next time somebody says to me, oh, here's the preacher I like best and it's not my name. I'm going to say, yeah, you know, I know how you feel. Here's the church member I like best, and it's not your name. <laughs> you know, we can play with this stuff. But I just recently heard about what happened, you know, uh, I heard about the career of the guy who was the most charismatic, the most prominent, he was the leader of the student body when I was in seminary. He had a natural advantage. He was good-looking. 
He had a natural advantage. He graduated from a leading prestigious university, which doesn't pronounce ours, but I won't otherwise identify it. And uh, he, I mean, he's just charismatic personality. And eventually, as happens, he was the pastor of a 5,000-member church. And, but you know how hard it is to keep a 5,000-member church going. And the pressures were enormous. And eventually, I mean, the, the fellow's mid-60s, early 60s, and it turns out he had developed an addiction to uh, pain pills. Partly because he started out with pain, but then because they just helped him get through the day. Now, and he's a good guy, a naturally charismatic fellow, but it's just a lot of pressures, competitive pressures, a lot like Paul experienced here. You know, how do we evaluate pastors? Now, now look at this. And not just pastors. How do we evaluate spiritual leaders? How do we evaluate? You know, the same thing happens at the level of Bible study leaders. You know, when I was in a ministry of maybe 60 people and we broke down into five or six Bible studies, whoa, that first night every year when you assign people to Bible studies, or no, because you can't assign Americans, right? When, when, when people choose their own Bible study leader, what that first night is torment for the Bible study leaders. Because it's kind of like a popularity context, contest. Now we know the truth of it. Charisma matters. If somebody's got an outgoing personality, it'll be more fun if it's a Bible study. We know that. Dynamic people are more fun to associate with, more fun to be part of. You know, the group, the group is more fun. But we know that reality. And so I don't want to deny it. At the same time, you know, we, we don't want to be just cultural. We also want to be Christian. And Paul says a key factor here is this. What's the heart? If we are out of, mind, out of our mind, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us. Let it be our leader's love for us which matters more to us than their charisma. Let it be their engagement with us. Let it be, and if you're a leader, wow, you know, the temptation, I understand, I do this every week, right? Not most every week. You know, when you're up front, whether you're leading a study or teaching a Sunday school class or you're preaching on a platform, what really matters to you when you get done is, how'd I do? Was this week better than last week, you know? And this is just such the wrong question. Because what does Paul say? How do we evaluate it? If we are out of, your mind, out of our mind, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it's for you. Really what Paul is telling us as leaders is this. Are you worried about how God did today? About whether God was honored and glorified? Whether the people were really helped to worship God? Would they understand him better? Will they follow him with greater devotion and a greater cost? Because we spent this time together. Are you worried about your reputation or about, are you worried about God's reputation? And are you worried about whether these people love you enough? Or are you worried about whether you love them enough? See, Paul is talking to followers about what they should look for in leaders. But he's a role model of, as leaders, what we should be for our followers. It's a love of God and a love for the other people. Look at the 
The second point he makes here, you know, remember the contrast between what is seen rather than what's in his heart? And so he talks about what's in his heart. Now he talks about what is seen in verses 16 to 17. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we no longer do so. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. These are familiar verses, but we quote them out of context, so we miss the point of the meaning. Take a look at it again. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What's the worldly point of view? It's the insistence in his context. It was expressly the, the insistence on charisma, on profundity, on eloquence. In, in ours, it's often how funny somebody is, how good-looking they are, how uh, interesting they are, you know, how charismatic they are, this undefinable quality X. From now on, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. And now there's a really important reason why we don't do that anymore. Because look at the next verse. Although we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. What Paul is saying is this. You know, we're going to celebrate communion. Why was Christ crucified? Why did the, why did the Jewish leaders give Jesus up for, uh, for crucifixion? Because they were looking for something and he wasn't it. They were looking for Messiah and they thought he was it. They brought him into the city with a great acclaim and then he didn't do what he expected them to do. They had looked at Jesus as a worldly point of view. And, and here's the thing about the cross. Why did the Romans crucify somebody? It's not just to kill them. There's quicker ways of doing that. It's to humiliate them. And why did the early Christians flee? Or why did the Jews not want to follow Jesus? Because he was humiliated. And so what Paul says is if we still follow this same criteria of evaluation, where we look at things outwardly, we look at things carnal, then what we see at communion is not the depth of God's love for us. What we see at communion is Jesus was humiliated. He was impotent. He couldn't even save his own life. How can he save ours? So Paul says it's crucial that we make this change of mind from how our world views things. Jesus was not a success from worldly standards. He died alone, except for a few insignificant women who stayed with him, and his male disciples all fled. He died brutally. He was not a success. And if we continue to view each other through cultural standards of what matters, then it implies we're viewing Christ through cultural standards. And if Christ has reversed those standards, that his humiliation became his exaltation, then that changes how we view one another. We don't look for the worldly criteria of success and influence. We look for Christian criteria. So from now on, we regard no one from any worldly point of view. We don't regard Christ that way anymore, and so we don't regard each other that way anymore. If anyone is in Christ, here's how we see them. Not by the cultural standards. Here's how we see them. The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. We see them that way, not just because of who they are in God's eyes, but because what we've become through God's work in our hearts. We count things differently now. We see things differently now because we see Christ differently now. And so he urges, look at what's in the heart. Don't look at what's outside. 
Now, he adds a third point in here. I will throw this in. I will explain this because it's in the text. It doesn't really apply nearly so much to us today, and you'll see why in a moment. But here's this third point. We look at what's in the heart, not what's seen. And then there's another piece of it. Verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice what Paul says in verse 20, skipping down. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. You know, what Paul is saying is, look, Christ commissioned me, so I'm his ambassador now. We are Christ's ambassadors. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Notice how strong this is. What is he saying to Corinthians? On Christ's behalf, as Christ's ambassador, I'm imploring you, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Be reconciled to God, is what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. These are Christians. And reconciliation is a Christian metaphor. Paul is saying, be reconciled to God. Paul is saying, get saved, more or less. And they're Christians. Uh, verse 6, as God's co-workers, I'm God's co-worker. He says, Paul is God's co-worker. And Paul says, as God's co-worker... Don't, I urge you, don't receive God's grace in vain. Don't forfeit your salvation. Verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. You see, four or five times, what's Paul threatening them with? Paul is saying, look, I'm God's ambassador. So if you reject me, Paul says to Corinthians, you're rejecting God. You can't have Christ without having his ambassador. Remember that incident recently in New York City where some, uh, where a maid went to the authorities and claimed that she was being kept in virtual slavery. And so the, the uh, local police or they came in and they arrested the diplomat from a developing nation who'd had the maid. And they arrested this diplomat. Uh, and then they, as they do with all people that they arrest and put in jail, they strip searched her. And remember the international scandal? that came out of that, out of you treating a diplomat this way, diplomatic immunity and all that, and, and to insult this woman, or to treat this woman this way, is not just an insult against her, it's an insult against the whole country. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, God commissioned me to be his ambassador. And the only way you can have a good relationship with God is to have a good relationship with Paul. And now, now this is really where we've got to pay attention, because this does not nearly apply so well. You know, our relationship together, whether it be pastor or congregation or whether it be Bible study leader or whether it be elder and congregation or Bible study leader and members of the Bible study, is not nearly so hierarchical as that. None of us has been commissioned like the Apostle Paul was. So we can't apply this to ourselves. But what we can do is say this. We've got to, I think, acknowledge this. At least this. That there has to be some kind of bias toward respecting our leaders until they show us that they don't deserve it or until we see areas where they don't deserve it. There has to be some, you know, uh, Asian, I think, it depends how we do handle this as well, how Asian we are and how American. Asians are often too Confucian, too uh, submissive to leaders. So maybe if you're really Asian, raised overseas, maybe you think pastors or elders are next to God now, that can be a disadvantage for us because eventually you get close enough to us, you see we're not. And, and then you get disillusioned. Uh, but if you're American, you know, the whole American thing, right, is to rebel against leadership. 
let's at least say this much, is that we have a mild bias in favor of spiritual leadership at whatever level, that we try to respect the leader unless they demonstrate they're not accept, worthy of respect. So there are these three points that Paul is basically making. Why the Corinthians should respect him? Because he has a heart for them. And it tells us not only who we should respect, but it also tells us how to lead. We should have a heart for the people. And secondly, he tells us how not to disrespect. Let's not measure by worldly criteria. And thirdly, he urges us to take a basic stance, not an ironclad stance, a basic stance of respect to those in leadership. Pulling it all together, I think there's two contrasting opposing tendencies here. Let's, let's do this. We've got to acknowledge reality. Charisma, personality, outward gifts, these things matter. We're still human beings. These things matter to us. On the other hand, let us make a modest commitment. Let us make a modest commitment to move away from that to this Christian model, where what really matters is somebody's heart for God rather than their outward charisma. There's a lot more that needs to be said, and Paul doesn't say it here because he says it throughout the whole letter. Competence also matters. We shouldn't put people in leadership just because they have a heart for God. They've got to have competence in that particular skill, or we put them in some other ministry. We acknowledge reality as what it is. We make a modest commitment to move away from secular reality toward Christian reality. We look for the heart, not for the outward. But thirdly, let's remember this. All of this came out of, remember we started at chapter 5, verse 12. All of this came out of Paul's statement in chapter 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Let's, all of this, keep an internal perspective. Whether you're popular now and charismatic now, or quiet and timid, ultimately this is not what matters the most. Whether you have a deep heart for God, that matters. Whether people see your heart for God, maybe it doesn't matter quite so much. Whether you have a deep heart, deep heart for people, people need to know that. But maybe they don't see it. You can live with that. Because here's what matters most. One day, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And if we were charismatic in this life, it won't make a bit of difference up there. And if we love people and God in this life, it'll make all the difference up there. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So through all this others, while we develop a real passion for people, and while we pull back from judging people by worldly criteria, let's remember all of this, that this life is only the first run. It's not the final judgment. The final assessment will come at the end of time, and that's what we want to live for. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to work in our hearts that our passion for each other and for you might grow, and that our critique based on outward performance or outward personality will diminish, that we might be found holy and blameless before you at the end. In Jesus' name, amen.